Hello, and welcome to the latest ClearBridge podcast. This is Jeff Schulze, CFA, Investment Strategist at ClearBridge Investments. ClearBridge is a global equity manager with $146 billion in assets under management, committed to delivering long-term results through authentic active management. ClearBridge tailors our strategies to meet three primary client objectives in our areas of proven expertise, high active share, income solutions, and low volatility. We integrate ESG considerations into our fundamental research process across all strategies. So as I'm sure all of you are aware, we've developed the Anatomy of a Recession program here at ClearBridge, and it's designed to give investors some unique perspectives on catalysts that historically lead to recessions and gauge current recession risks to better inform their investment approach. And I'm thrilled to be here today with my economic partner in crime, if you will, Josh Jamner, who's an investment strategy analyst at ClearBridge and a key collaborator in developing our ClearBridge recession risk dashboard and the regular updates that we provide on the dashboard's indicators. Josh, welcome to the boost. This is your first time here. Thanks for having me. And the topic of today's podcast is recession risks. Will the Fed save the day? We'd love to get your feedback about the topics we cover and how we can make our podcast better. So you can contact us with questions, comments, and suggestions by emailing us at podcast at clearbridge.com. So Josh, first time in the booth. What's your initial thoughts so far? I'm excited to be here. Good. I'm glad to have you here. Obviously, I know what you do for ClearBridge, but wouldn't you mind telling the listeners what types of uh, hats you wear at the firm? Yeah. So I wear two hats at ClearBridge. I split my time. Part of that time is spent working with portfolio managers and analysts, helping them delve deeper into economic issues, things like market leadership, what the Fed might be doing. And then I think you're pretty familiar with the other half of my time. I'd say that's accurate. We work pretty closely together. And I think the listeners probably know, the thing that they might know the best is the recession dashboard. Great, great. Now, we've obviously just come out with our quarterly update, our views on the economy and obviously what the dashboard's output is. I'm going to blindside you here. If you had to pick a song to describe the economy right now, what song would it be? That's a good one. I think you'd have to go with Bon Jovi's Living on a Prayer. I think the economy Ah. is holding on, living on a a little bit of a prayer right now. But I'm going to flip it back to you. If you had to pick a song, what do you think will be the best descriptor for the economy right now? I'm the one that's allowed to ask questions here, not (laughs) not you. I was not expecting this. Slippery When Wet? No, hold on, wait. That's the album cover. I'm from New Jersey. I should know every Bon Jovi song, like the back of my hand. I'm going to go with Keep the Faith. Ooh. ooh. Yeah, yeah. Early 90s uh, rendition there. I think uh, your Living on the Prayer is probably a really accurate song for where we stand right now because we expect the economy here to slow in the U.S. over the next couple of quarters. We do think that there's going to be a recession scare, and they think there's a 50% probability of recession, 50% bear case recession, 50% that this is a slowdown akin to what we saw back in 2016. Obviously, a lot of that is based on the recession risk dashboard. So, Josh, talk a little bit about the dashboard. You know, What's the output? Kind of what signals are you focusing in on, and where do you think is going to be the key to indicate whether this is a slowdown or an outright recession? I think the thing that I'm watching most closely right now is the consumer section of the dashboard. That consumer section, I think we both refer to as the bastion of strength or the strong foundation holding things up in the economy right now. Absolutely. All four of the indicators there are green right now. When we look at the rest of the dashboard, things like financial markets or inflation or business activity are a mix. There's some green, some yellow, some red. But that consumer section really is the strong backbone of the economy. And if we start to see weakness there, 
that would be really concerning to me. I think that would be how we go from a slowdown into something that resembles more closely a recession. I think if I had to pick one indicator that's like the most important there right now, it's kind of like picking your favorite child. I, I love them all, love them all equally, I should probably say. But I think retail sales is probably the one that if that were to turn, that would be the most concerning to me. It wouldn't surprise me if job sentiment maybe softened up a little bit. It had been yellow a couple months ago. It turned back green. We are seeing a little bit more weakness in some of the consumer-related survey data of which job sentiment is one of those types of measures. So I think retail sales, is, if that were to turn yellow or even red, that would be a lot more concerning to me. What about yourself? Out of the consumer section or just broadly speaking? Either. <laughs> Out of the consumer section, I personally like jobless claims. You, usually you'll see jobless claims spike right before you are on the doorstep of a recession. When you, jobless claims increase 12% year over year, historically that's three months out, um, like a glove. You don't have any false positives, and it gives you a very good idea of when that recession will hit. So I'm happy that even though jobless claims have been up a little bit because of the GM strike, we're not quite at those levels where you're seeing those layoffs occur and the economy is about to roll over. It brings me to an important point, right? You talked about retail sales and the dashboard. The overall dashboard is yellow right now, green meaning expansion, yellow meaning rising recession risk, and then red, of course, being recessionary. Jobless claims is one of the last indicators to turn historically in the dashboard. Talk a little bit about the leading time of the indicators, maybe an example of a longer leading indicator. And we've obviously already discussed one of the shorter ones. Yeah. So it brings up a really good point. If we look at the dashboard, there's a mix. There's some of the indicators, things like the yield curve or wage inflation tend to be really long leading indicators. Something, as you just mentioned, jobless claims or even credit spreads, those tend to be shorter leading indicators. They still typically lead a recession, but they're going to turn yellow or red much closer to the time of that recession starts. And if you look at the dashboard through that lens of sort of longer versus shorter leading indicators, it's mostly the longer leading indicators that have turned yellow or red. So I mentioned wages, I mentioned the yield curve. Both of those are yellow or red right now. It's most of those sort of shorter leading indicators that are holding up. So I think that's an, an interesting dynamic, and I think it's an important thing to keep an eye on. If we do start to see those shorter leading indicators start to turn, that could be a sign that that recession is getting closer. Whereas today, with most of those shorter leading indicators still green, gives us a little bit of comfort that the recession is not here on the doorstep. And as you mentioned, the overall signal is yellow. You, you mentioned the yield curve. Now, I can't lay off the, this topic. It's like a high and inside pitch in baseball. I just can't lay off it. Consensus right now feels that the yield curve inversion isn't powerful signal. Monetary policy being extreme as it has, QE bringing in down the long end of the curve. Is this time different? I don't know what the answer to this is because we've discussed it, but I think our listeners may find this as a pretty interesting tidbit. Yeah. So I don't think the yield curve, I don't think things are different this time. I know you don't think things are different this time either. The four most dangerous words in finance, by the way, <laughs> yes. gotten a lot of people in trouble over the years. <laughs> yes, they certainly have. And I think the reason for that, and we both I know that we think very similarly here, is we believe that the long end of the curve is really not being driven by crossover purchasers, right? You see a lot of things out there in the media or elsewhere that low interest rates or negative yields in Europe are causing investors there to come over to the United States, buy our debt, and that's artificially depressing our yields. Pick up yields, and then that's pushing the bonds down. But I think what people, when they offer that, are missing is that hedging costs are really significant. It actually costs quite a bit of money to swap euros for dollars right now. Okay. The yield on a three-month bond is about 1.6%. I'm generalizing 1.617. A three-month currency swap costs 1.819. So you're actually still underwater. And 10-year treasuries are at 1.516. So you're losing 20, 25 basis points off the bat. Absolutely. And there are other costs to doing that transaction that I haven't laid out in addition to just those currency swap costs. So... Ultimately, when we look at it, I don't think we come to the conclusion that crossover buyers are really the dominant driver for the yield curve. I think that 
that could be a factor. But you know, most of those, let's just say a European investor who's looking to pick up yield, looking to avoid negative rates at home, they can only really make money by reaching out really far along the curve or by buying spread products. I know you have a couple of thoughts on that. Yeah, corporate bonds, agencies, mortgage backs, uh, anything that's a spread over treasuries. Yeah, I think that's one of the reasons why credit spreads lagged the equity markets into the sell-off in the fourth quarter of last year, which is a very rare phenomenon. Usually credit spreads will blow out, call it three to six months prior to the downturn, and, and they lagged by a week. And the information value that you get from credit spreads may not be what we've historically had because of these crossover buyers. And that just brings me to an important point on why we have 12 indicators in the dashboard, is that things change over time. Maybe credit spreads don't have the information value that they traditionally have, but we still have 11 indicators that we can fall back on to be able to assess the health of the U.S. economy. Kind of going back to this time is different, I'm going to say that it was always different when the yield curve inverted. It was different back in the 2000s when Bernanke thought it was the global savings glut that was causing the version. It was different back in the late 90s when we actually had a current account surplus, believe it or not, in the U.S. and the lack of treasury. The good old days, although that was a little before my time. (laughs) It was causing that inversion. So we've actually found that the 10-year treasury has been mirroring manufacturing PMI, which is synonymous with the business cycle. Manufacturing PMI captures accelerations and decelerations of economic activity quite well. And if you overlay a chart of the 10-year treasury on manufacturing PMI, They are mirror images of one another, which suggests... Fits like a glove. Like a glove. That the drop in the treasury yields that we've seen has just been domestic weakness and recession fears. So I think there's a little bit of a complacent view there from a consensus perspective on what the yield curve is actually telling us. If you had to pick one indicator, I'm just kind of curious. I know I mentioned retail sales is something I'm focusing on. If you had to pick something knowing that this time isn't different with the yield curve, what would you be watching most closely on the dashboard right now? Man, you're asking a lot of questions over there. (laughs) I'm going to have to say profit margins probably has me most concerned at this point. We don't look at S&P 500 profit margins. Usually you see cracks in their foundation last. We look at a more holistic view of the U.S. economy, which is called NIPA profit margins. This takes into consideration micro, small, mid-cap, and large-cap companies as well. And NIPA profit margins were revised down substantially in July, revised down by $200 billion, which is a huge revision outside of a recession. And because the U.S. economy, 60% of the labor force here is employed by companies with less than 1,000 employees, it's really these small and micro-cap companies that are feeling the brunt of this margin pressure because of a tight labor market, higher compensation costs, and the inability to pass through those tariffs to their clients. And just to put it in perspective, if you look at your average Russell 2000 company, that has 3,679 employees. So it's almost four times the size of most of where America works. It's crazy because we all think about the Russell 2000 as these kind of, kind of smallish companies and it's four times the size of <laughs> anything <laughs> but, right? Yeah, yeah. So what I'm going to be watching very closely is usually when NIPA profit margins roll over, you'll see a lagged effect of S&P 500 operating earnings. And when usually when you see this divergence, It's not usually NIPA that catches up to the S&P, but it's the reverse where the S&P ratchets its down. So I'm going to be watching this really closely, and I do think that it does provide an element of a potential downside surprise for earnings, for margins, for this upcoming earnings quarter here in in, in Q3. Now, let's kind of circle back a little bit. We're yellow. Yellow signals means rising recession risk. It doesn't necessarily mean a recession. Talk to me a little bit about yellow signals as compared to to red signals. Is a yellow mean that recession is a foregone conclusion? 
No, no, it doesn't. We're talking red, yellow, green. I think about it as the stoplight analogy. I know that's how we, we talk about it with our clients. But if you think, and I'm stealing this line from you, I know, uh, what happens when you see a, a yellow signal on the traffic light? You know, I don't own a car, so I'm probably not the best person to ask. But I think most people maybe maybe press down on the accelerator a little bit further. But My wife does not appreciate that, by the way, because I, yes, I, I look as a yellow to keep moving forward. But typically, if you look at the information value in the dashboard, red signal tends to be stronger, has more efficacy than a yellow signal. It's not to say that there's no information to be taken from a yellow signal. It's just telling us that we're in a period of caution. When we look at red signals, that's really the call that a recession is on the immediate horizon or is coming around the corner. If we look back historically, obviously the dashboard has seen eight red signals. There have also been a couple times where the dashboard turned yellow and then went back to green. 1995 was one of those times, 1998, 2015, 16. So there's been three times historically where the dashboards turned yellow. We were in this kind of period of caution and then things got a little bit better and ultimately we avoided a recession. And, and when we think about it, those yellow signals and whether it turns red or goes back to green, yellow signals should last somewhere between six and nine months on average. Could be a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. So the dashboard's been yellow for three months as we get closer to the new decade, 2020s. I think that we should hopefully get clarity, whether it's by New Year's, I'll keep my fingers crossed, but it certainly <laughs> could be in the first quarter, hopefully not too much longer after that. For us to really get a more clear picture on what the data is telling us, is this a slowdown or is this ultimately going to be a recession? And you're absolutely right, right? Eight red signals, seven of which were recession. So red is obviously the more powerful signal. The one thing I want to mention, though, is with the three, quote unquote, as we call them, false positives, I firmly believe that they would not have been false positives if one key thing didn't happen during each one of those timeframes. The Fed recognized economic weakness early. And they acted and provided the liquidity that the economy needed in order to get through that soft patch. If you think back to 95, the Fed cut rates three times starting in July of 95 for a total of 75 basis points. In 98, they cut three times for a total of 75 basis points. And then in 2016, although they didn't cut, there was four rate hikes that were priced into 2016. And in March of that year, the Fed said that we weren't raising rates for the foreseeable future. And they ultimately only raised rates once in December of that year, which is the net effect of 75 basis points. So obviously, the Fed got the message and did what they needed to do. And the key question right now is, has the Fed recognized this weakness early enough to be able to head off a recession? Obviously, the Fed's cut twice up until this point for a total of 50 basis points. The market's currently saying that they're going to cut again in about two weeks. Okay. So, I mean, if they cut, let's just say at the end of October, have they saved the day? I don't know. I mean, that's the million dollar or should I say trillion dollar question here? <laughs> I think it's going to be, certainly it is the trillion dollar question. I, th I think ultimately there's good news and bad news on this front. The bad news is that there's a lag to Fed policy, right? If the Fed cuts, it doesn't necessarily ripple out and impact the economy the next day. Certainly interest rates adjust, but it takes time for this to really flow through the economy. If you think about it, we have a lot of debate on this internally. Yes, we do. What is the appropriate lag for a Fed policy decision, change in Fed policy in, into the underlying economy? And some people say six months, some people say 12, some people say 18. We've kind of settled on 12 as sort of a reasonable approximation. It could be a little bit longer, a little bit shorter. I think that's conservative. But if you think about where we were 12 months ago, we still have another Fed rate hike to digest from December of last year. In addition to the Fed was shrinking its balance sheet all the way until about the midpoint of 2019. So there's still a fair amount more tightening that needs to get digested by the economy, so to speak. doesn't mean that as we move into the second half of 2020, we're going to shift course from a policy perspective. But for the time being, we're going to be kind of continuing to take down some of this tightening in the short term. And then the economic cake has been baked, if you will, as I like to say. Yes. It rhymes, right? 
I, I like it. It's catchy. The one thing that I want to point out is that manufacturing PMI, which is the new orders component, which we have in our dashboard, is flashing red right now. But if you look at the broader manufacturing PMI survey, which is synonymous with the business cycle, does a good job of inflecting and identifying accelerations and decelerations of economic activity since 1950, when you've had no Fed tightening before the deceleration of manufacturing PMI, on average, it troughed at 49 just as a reminder to the listeners, anything at 50 is the, kind of the, the line that demarks expansion and contraction. Above 50, the PMIs are expanding. The economy is expanding. If below 50, the economy is contracting, and so is the survey. When you have had Fed tightening prior to the deceleration, which is our current case, manufacturing PMI bottomed out at 40.5. And that's a big reason why the market sold off last week, because manufacturing PMI came in at 47.8, which is well below consensus expectations. And that was something that we've been expecting and we continue to expect to happen over the remainder of this year and into the beginning part of next year. It wouldn't be unprecedented, I should say, to see it pop back above 50 for maybe a month or two. It doesn't necessarily have to be next month. But when we look back and study history, when you're in these sort of down cycles in the ISM manufacturing index and the PMI, it's not necessarily a straight path down. You do see a little bit of noise to that signal. But ultimately, I agree with you. I think that the path from here is lower on that. Uh, I think one of the key things for the economy will be, will this sort of decoupling between services and manufacturing continue? Ooh. Another dangerous word right there. This time is different, decoupling. <laughs> so what I'm referring to is, Jeff just mentioned, the ISM manufacturing is in the 47 range. ISM services is 52 or 53. 52.8, I think. Yeah, thank you. And we've seen this decoupling before. 2015-16 was a good example. While ISM manufacturing went well below 50, the low in ISM services was about 52 and a half give or take. Well, and this is important, right? Because manufacturing is about 11% of the U.S. economy. Services is close to 70. So obviously 11% should it really have an effect on services. But what I found, even though there could be a pop in the near term, and that should be good for risk assets and the equity markets, is what I found is that it decoupling is accurate to a point. Once manufacturing PMI goes below a level of 48, Usually you'll see it infect other areas of the economy, services obviously being the key area that it infects. And if you look at the latest print, we're below 48. Not surprising, you saw a big drop in services here in the U.S. But also if you look all across Europe, manufacturing PMI low numbers are infecting their services as well. Germany's probably the clear-cut example of that. So decoupling, at this point in the cycle, everybody will always say decoupling, but I think it's true up until a point. And I think we're slowly reaching the point where that's not necessarily the case anymore. I'm with you. And you know something that we get asked about a lot that I think is an important point to make is manufacturing is only 11% of the economy, as you just said. And people say, well, you know, does it still matter? Should we still be paying attention to this? And, and I always say, yes, absolutely. While manufacturing is only just 11% of the economy, it has been shrinking for 30, 40, 50 years at this point. It's a very volatile piece of the economy. When it swings up and down, it moves by a much greater amount than services do. If you think about it, whether the economy is doing well or doing not so well, I, you and I still need to eat dinner tonight, right? We still to go out and buy, and buy food. We still need to put gas in the car to drive to work. You know, some of these sort of basic necessities, these staples, we might spend a little bit more money. I might be eating at a nicer restaurant or cooking food at home, but ultimately we're still buying beef or, or whatever the case right. may be. When you look at manufacturing activity, what happens to a, I'm not going to single out the auto sector because of, because of the GM strike right now, but what happens in a factory when, when economic activity slows down? They might cut an Flash entire shift. Yeah. They might actually close the factory and idle the factory for a period of time. So the amount of change that happens in the manufacturing portion of the economy is much greater than what we see in services typically. Because of that, even though it is a, a smaller piece of the pie, because it can move so much so quickly, it still has the power to drive the economy overall. 
I want to go back to this idea about Fed policy. Will the Fed save the day this time around? Obviously, it's the title of this podcast. Powell is now embarking on a QE program in the repo markets. Is that a fair representation? Is QE back in full effect? I'm going to say it's an unfair representation for the moment. What Chairman Powell alluded to, I don't know if it's actually been formally announced yet, but it certainly will be if it hasn't been. They've certainly made it pretty clear what they're going to do. What the Fed is trying to do is stabilize the repo market. And that's different from QE in an important way. QE is the Fed trying to provide liquidity to stimulate the economy. They're taking bonds from, it could be me or you selling them a bond for all we know. Banks or whoever, yeah. Banks or whoever. But it's taking assets from outside of the financial system, providing liquidity to that hopefully will go and stimulate the economy. Throwing cash into the economy. Exactly. With the repo market, with the, the activity that they're doing right now, they're really trying to just sort of keep the wheels turning you know, provide grease to those wheels or keep things moving by keeping the repo market flowing. Thank you. They're not actually providing cash outside of the financial system. All of the money, all of these transactions are going to stay within the financial system. So this is more about avoiding disruptions like we saw at the end of last quarter and in late September. We'd actually seen some of them at the end of 2018 as well. Typically happens around quarter end. Ultimately, we think that this is more the intention here on the part of Powell and on the part of the Fed is not to stimulate the economy. It's to sort of keep the wheels flowing, keep economic transactions going. And what I'll say is that the Fed's balance sheet isn't stable. If you look at the Fed's balance sheet from 94 to 2007, it actually doubled, right? So it slowly grew to be able to provide enough currency and circulation for the economy to grow. So the idea about QE just because the balance sheet is growing, I don't necessarily agree with that logic at all. If, if you go all the way back, starting in, I believe, 1918 or, or sometime right after World War One, the uh, Fed balance sheet grew at about 6% a year up until the global financial crisis. So the, the norm, the base case is the Fed's balance sheet should be growing. They should be providing currency to allow the economy to keep growing. That hasn't been happening for the last four or five years. So I think we're getting back more towards a historical trend as opposed to really trying to stimulate the economy here. Let's talk about our bear case, right? We have obviously talked about why we think the economy will continue to slow. Financial markets may go up in the near term, but we're going to probably get an air pocket here sometime over the next six months. The bear case and our thesis really rests on some meetings that are going on today, right? So you have the Chinese delegation here to talk about a potential trade truce that's obviously weighed on business confidence. It's weighed on hiring, maybe even starting to weigh on consumer confidence. So do you expect any positive developments out of the meetings today? Or, I mean, expectations are pretty low. And we're either going to look like geniuses when this is actually posted or, uh, you know, that we had it way off. Expectations are very low. And as you know, I have a a young child. I was up about three times last night trying to deal with her. And uh, You and me both. My son's sick. Every time I I got up and I was helping put her back to bed, I checked my phone. And every time there was a different Bloomberg headline that had come across my iPhone screen about what was going on or what the latest with the Chinese trade situation was. Ultimately, I don't think that we're going to get a quote-unquote comprehensive deal. I think that news media seems to indicate that there could be some sort of truce. I don't know what the right terminology, soft deal, truce, truce, pause. That would certainly be a positive for the market. But if it doesn't materialize, I do think that there's some risk there. Expectations have come up on a deal over the last couple of days. And ultimately, when we think about why does trade matter, I think it, it impacts us in a couple of ways. We've certainly seen business confidence take a pretty dramatic hit since tariffs were first implemented. It yeah, peaked literally when the steel and aluminum tariffs went into effect in 2018, and it's been straight down since. So is hiring. Yeah. And I was going to say, it's not just business confidence. That's had a knock-on effect into things like hiring. That trend certainly slowed. We've also seen CapEx slow. If you look at like the most last two quarters in GDP, business spending on not just 
machinery, but also buildings, even IT spending, which has been a really strong portion of where what companies are putting CapEx dollars into. It's computers or software, that kind of stuff. Even that has slowed down from where we were three, four, five quarters ago. I think CapEx was negative last quarter. Yeah, absolutely. Was. Also, what really concerns me is this last $300 billion worth of goods that we're talking about, the goods that could go up on October 15th, and then the last tranche on December 15th. These are all consumer-facing goods, right? Clothing, toys, shoes, electronics. If you start to see tariffs materially go up on all of these goods that people buy every day, the strength of the U.S. economy, which we've been talking about, the last kind of green area of our dashboard, maybe people get a little bit more bearish about their future. They start to hoard cash. They stop spending. I mean, that's what ultimately causes the last domino to fall for the U.S. economy. If you look at the two consumer confidence surveys that we've had, which is the University of Michigan survey and then also the conference board survey, they had some pretty disappointing prints over the last couple of months. And I don't know if this is a temporary blip on the radar screen or if this is the start of a more sustained downturn because of the fear of tariffs and what that's going to do to the products that people buy every day. Yeah, I think the potential good news there, if there is a little bit of a silver lining, is by the time that those if those tariffs do go into effect later this month and closer to year end, the goods that retailers have purchased for the holiday season have already largely been imported to the U.S. Sure. So, you know, the impact of those tariffs probably won't be felt in full until early next year. And by that point, as we were talking about earlier, there's that lag to Fed policy. By the time the, the real consumer damage from tariffs could be felt, we could be at the time where that shift in Fed policy is just starting to take hold. And I think that, that might be a good pivot to talk about with the bull case. Well, let's just summarize the bear case, right? Um, obviously, we've had problems with profit margins with your average companies in the U.S., your small and micro cap companies, which is really the bread and butter of U.S. economic activity. Trade wars continues to escalate. It's already affected business confidence, in turn affecting hiring. And then last pillar of strength, the U.S. consumer, maybe their confidence gets a little bit less and they stop spending. The bull case, a slowdown case, I think we have a pretty robust section in the program that talks about this, really starts with the consumer. Yeah, the labor market is, as much as we said, hiring slowing a little bit. It's a little bit. Hiring labor markets is about as healthy as it's been. The unemployment rate at 3.5 is at a, I don't know, 50. Since 1969, I believe. Yeah. So multi-decade <laughs> low. Wage growth is healthy. If Last week with the job report, average hour learnings came down to 2.9. If you look at production and non-supervisory hours, so that's about 80% of workers in this country fall into that production and non-supervisory camp. They've had about a 3.5% increase in their wages year over year. That's a big it's, jump. It's uh, just Way off above inflation right now. Way above. So consumers are in a pretty good shape. And if you think about what enables most consumers to spend, it starts with the money they take home in their paychecks every two weeks. That puts them on really healthy footing. One thing I'll mention is positioning. So if you look at the year-to-date flows globally, you've seen about $800 billion go into bond funds and money markets. And you've seen about $250 billion come out of global equity funds. The net effect of those two numbers is a $1.1 trillion move into what you would consider more of a risk-off positioning. So I think investor sentiment is pretty bearish, and usually the market does the best job of fooling the most amount of people. That would bode well for at least a boost in the markets over the next couple, call it two to three months. The other thing I'll also mention is about non-recessionary corrections. If this is a non-recessionary corrections, and we've had seven of them since 1984. You're talking about the sell-off fourth quarter of last year, just to, to be clear. Oh, fourth quarter of last year. If you look at the seven non-recessionary corrections we've had, on average, six months after those lows, the markets are up 25%. 
We were up exactly 25% after the lows the day after Christmas. And then 12 months after the lows, the markets are usually up 30% from those levels. And we've been choppy, but we're right on par with it being a non-recessionary correction. So it does actually give me a little bit more confidence that that's the camp that we're falling into. You know, another thing we share with those seven non-recessionary corrections is that typically you see some sort of Fed action or central bank action. It doesn't have to be the Fed. Typically, it's the Fed. But we've also seen the PBOC back in 2015-16 ease policy. When we look at what happened after that fourth quarter sell-off last year, the Fed reversed course in the middle of this year. So it's another similarity. And I think that's actually an interesting point, something we've been talking a fair bit about. When we came into the year, it was about, I think, 40% of central banks around the world were tightening policy. Uh, 42, yeah. 42, thank you. That meant they were either hiking rates or effectively hiking rates. The rest of them were on hold. They weren't doing anything. They were just leaving rates exactly where they were. And no central banks were cutting or easing policy going into the new year at the end of last year. A little over nine months later, where are we today? No central banks. We're looking at 33 major central banks defined by the BIS, the Bank for International Settlements. No central banks on their monitor have been hiking rates. Start contrast from 42%. Exactly. And 52% of them have been easing policy, 48 on hold, 52% easing. So we have seen a more than 180. I know it's probably as close to a 180 as we can get, but we have seen a dramatic turn in central bank policy around the world. And I think that if we talk about the bull case, what could drive the markets higher? If the consumer can kind of hold on, if the manufacturing portion of the economy doesn't really worsen substantially from here, as we move into the second, third quarter of next year, all of that easing that's been happening, all those lower rates around the world are going to start to take hold, and that could drive the markets higher, could drive the economy onto much firmer footing than where we find ourselves today. And the last thing I'll mention in the slowdown slash bull case is that leverage isn't really recessionary. We can look at leverage in two different lenses. You can look at corporate leverage and household accumulation of leverage. If you look at the last seven recessions, the five years heading into those recessions, you've seen an increase of leverage for the consumer and corporations by 15% of GDP. Today, Households have actually delevered over the past five years, and even though corporations have taken on more debt, net leverage increase has only been 1.3%. So that's a far cry from 15, which means there's not a lot of excesses, which gives the economy a fighting chance to get through this slowdown. But I think that's all the time that we have here today. We're obviously at a crossroads. We think that the markets and the economy could see a slowdown here over the next couple of quarters. Obviously, the Clearbridge Recession Risk Dashboard usually sees an inflection point between six and nine months of turning yellow. And given that we turned yellow in July, that means that this quarter and next quarter are going to be pivotal to being able to identify where we are and how long, ultimately, this economic cycle goes. Josh, I want to thank you for joining me in the booth here today. Thanks for having me. Hopefully, we'll see that inflection point and you'll have me back sometime soon. I'm hoping for an inflection point and a reacceleration of the data because recessions are no fun for anybody. Thank you, everybody, for joining in. We hope you've enjoyed the latest version of the ClearBridge podcast, and we welcome you back to next month's version. And again, we welcome any questions, comments, and suggestions, which you can email us at podcast at clearbridge.com. Thanks for joining. Please note the following. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. The opinions and views expressed in today's podcast are of the individual speakers as of October 10th, 2019, and may differ from other managers or the firm as a whole, and are not intended to be a forecast of future events, a guarantee of future results, or investment advice. Any statistics reference have been obtained from sources believed to be reliable, but the accuracy and completeness of this information cannot be guaranteed. Neither Clearbridge Investments nor its information providers are responsible for any damages or losses arising from any use of this information. Thank you.